Grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 35. Genesis 35, we're starting a, a, a new a series. Um, and uh, let me see if we can get it up there. You see it's animated. The animated ones get goofy. There we are. Uh, Genesis 35. Yeah, it's going to be goofy. Uh, we are, what's that? Oh, I thought you said something. Uh, we're going to start a, a brief Christmas series called... Um, um, uh, I got O, o Come, O Come, uh, Emmanuel in my head. O Little Town of Bethlehem, where we want to look at uh, this, the town, the city of Bethlehem, as it appears throughout Scripture. And we want to look at the first reference to it, clear reference to it, here this morning with the story of Rachel. So Genesis 35, page 34 of your pew Bibles. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, please take that home with you, and we can certainly get you another Bible as well. But with that said, please stand with me at a reverence for God's Word. Moses writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we ask, as always, you would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it, our eyes, that we would see your glory, our, our, our ears, that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth, that we would speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to each other, to the world around us, to our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience of Christ. Lord, this is, this is a tough, tough passage to read, and yet may we not miss the beauty of what Christmas is all about, uh, that you have come into a world of sorrow. Um, and boy, don't we need to hear that this weekend. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I think it's fair to say that one of the, or considered one of the greatest love stories of Western culture might be um, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, by that I mean there's not a man here who has read it since he was made to read it in high school. Even then, that was Cliff Notes. But nevertheless, uh, I think it's argu arguably we, we could say that one of the greatest uh, story of romance is Romeo and Juliet. And, and, and on the one hand, it's the simple story of boy meets girl. But it's more than that. It's, 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 a, it's a story where the conflict is they can't be together. And so, in the end, they choose death over separation. It's a memorable story because we assume it will be a happily ever after. They will be able to figure it all out in the end, and they will hold hands, uh, run off to the sunset, and live their happily ever after. But it turns into a tragedy. And in that sense, the story of Rachel is a Shakespearean tragedy. We anticipate a story about love and family, but what we get is a story of sorrow and death. Let's start here with Rachel's broken past. Rachel's broken past. Now, in order to understand what's going on here at the end of her life, we really have to go back to, to, to her, how we're introduced to her. Let's, let's go back to chapter 29, if you will. Um, chapter 29, um, 
This is where a boy meets girl. We can describe it that way, right? Boy meets girl. Now, in every stereotypical love story, uh, we all know that the protagonist is, is coming off of a bad relationship or lost their job or, or it never snows where they live. And so, so they've come home, right, for Christmas, right? And, and, and what, what do they find there? Well, they're at some standard local event, uh, a parade or a dinner or something. And what, lo and behold, as the snow begins to fall over Mayfield, right, or whatever the town might be, right, but as the snow begins to fall, over there in the distance is, is the, the girl or guy of their dreams, right? Anyone else watch Hallmark? Go back to watch the news. That's how bad Hallmark Christmas movies are, right? No, I'm, I'm only kidding. Only kidding. Um, but and then what happens, right? They meet, they have some sort of goofy encounter. Maybe their first date didn't go well. Maybe there's some sort of conflict there, but they're able to triumph over those. And again, as the snow begins to fall, they kiss, the camera zooms all the way around them, and they float off into the sky to live their happily ever after. It's, it's something, something like that. This story is not exactly like that. It is like it a little bit, but it's not exactly like that. In fact, we're there in chapter 29. We're going to come back. Go back to chapter 28, probably the page before, maybe the page you're on. This is when Jacob is sent to go find him a wife, right? Any of you mothers ever have that conversation? Okay, son, you're old enough. It's time for you to find someone else to put up with you, okay? Just, <laughs> you can go any, any day now. Well, look at verse 3 and, and 5 of chapter 28. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. Now, those of you all have been coming on Wednesday nights, that language should sound very familiar to you. It's, it's a re repetition of the creation covenant. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And so what you have is Isaac and Rebekah telling Jacob, go be fruitful and multiply. All right? Verse 4, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. that You may take possession of the land of your sojourns that God gave to Abraham. That, of course, it's, it's said very clearly in the text, that is the Abrahamic uh, covenant from Genesis 12. So not only are, are they called by creation to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth as vice regions, they are called as the people of Abraham to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth as part of the Abrahamic blessing. Verse 5, thus Isaac sent Jacob away. He went to Padam Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. So what we see here then is, is this is the introduction of Rachel. He is going to go and he is going to find a wife uh, th th that is among the people of Laban. And that is exactly what it is that, that they do. You see there in chapter uh, 29, verse 1, which direction does Jacob go? He goes east. Again, those of y'all who've been coming on Wednesday nights, that should send alarm bells in your head. East in Genesis is usually not a good thing. It usually means something bad is about to happen. They are kicked out east from the garden. Uh, Cain goes east whenever he goes to build him a city of Enoch and so on and so forth. East usually signifies that what looks like a good thing is going to turn out to be very tragic. So there he does that in verse 1, verse 2 to 8. He comes to a well, and he sees a large stone over it, right? And that is to, to protect the water source and everything else. Um, and that, that's a story that shows up later in Genesis we don't have time to get into. 
And that is keeping people from drinking of the water. Of course, it's one of its purposes. So he sees a bunch of sheep laying there waiting to drink, but they themselves are unable to. And so what the people there are waiting for is the uh, shepherds to come and together remove that stone. Now, I love this part of the story, okay? Look at chapter 29, verse 9. I absolutely love this. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father. She, you, see, you see what's happening there? That's the hallmark part, isn't it? He's talking to, to someone, and then there, lo and behold, right, as the sun was rising, her, her silhouette eclipses it with all of her beauty, right? And she's walking with all these sheep, right? I bet she smells pretty, too. He can, he can sense it from a distance, right? This is the girl. I bet there in the Middle Eastern sun, the snow was beginning to fall, right? No doubt about it. No, there's no doubt about it. You can hear the, the band playing in the background, the Titanic theme song, right? You can see this happening. Here comes Rachel, for she was a shepherdess. Oh, Jacob, he likes some sheep. He likes sheep. She likes sheep. They got something to talk about. I don't know what shepherds and shepherdess talk about when it comes to sheep, but they got something to talk about. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, then notice what he just did there. The original story is a group of shepherds going to come to remove him. Jacob sees the girl, right? What does he do? He, he eats him a can of, of spinach, and right? And he just... Uh, <laughs> You come to this gym often, right? You know, I bet he's got the sun's out, guns out shirt on, right? Right here, right? I just love that. He love that, right? It, this is a, 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 it takes a group of people to do this, but Jacob's know it's time to flex. I got to impress the girl. And that's exactly what it is that, that he does. And so verse 12, Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman. He was Rebecca's son. She ran and told her father. Now that's either a good or a bad thing. But I want you to notice how verse 10 um, Verse 11 reads there, because I don't know what to do with this. I think this is the most complicated verse in all the Bible. All right, you tell me what to do with this. Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. I have no idea what to do with that verse. Maybe some of you all who, who watch a lot of Lifetime stories can, can help me out with that. Now, nevertheless, so, so they meet. And, and what we get in verses 13 to 30 is that boy doesn't just meet girl, he marries the girl. And this is where things get really out of hand. Uh, Rachel and Jacob meet in verses 13 and 14, and Jacob says, I want to be near that girl. That means I will work for anyone, including my future father-in-law. Now, that, that's love. And so the agreement is, I will work for seven years if I get the girl, right? Like that lobster from, from Ariel, right? He, he, he just wants the girl, okay? And, and so he agrees to work seven years for his father-in-law. Notice there in verse 17, um, she is described, Jacob describes her as beautiful in form and appearance. He is smitten with Rachel. And so many of you all will know what happens. Verse 21 to 30 is the wedding and the wedding night. And so after seven years of labor, Jacob is ready to get married, to have his girl, and they have a big wedding. And no doubt he is a little intoxicated and he goes to bed. It's late at night. And little does he know the trickster, Jacob means deceiver, the trickster is tricked by his now father-in-law. Instead of giving Rachel his bride to Jacob, he is given Leah, the younger daughter, to Jacob. They wake up in the morning after consummating the marriage. It is too late. The deceiver has been deceived. So what does he do? He agrees to work for another seven years 
for the girl of his dreams. And you see there in verse 30, so Jacob uh, went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Do you see why there might be some conflict here east of Canaan? You see the conflict there, don't you? He's, he's married the two people and they're sisters. He loves one. He tolerates the other. You think this is going to cause some problems in Jacob's home? Verily I say unto thee, it will. It will create some problems. So we expect, coming into chapter 28 and 29, a stereotypical love story. But Rachel's biography is really an anti-love story. Look at chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. One is loved, the other is fruitful. The one who is fruitful is unloved. The one who is barren is loved. So what happens is conflict. The thing Rachel, the one who is loved, wants more than anything is to have children. Leah, the one who is fruitful but unloved, what she wants more than anything is to be loved by Jacob. It's amazing how jealousy works, is it? It takes our eyes off of what we do have and has us focus on what others have that we think we're entitled to. Rachel wants to be loved and to be fruitful. Leah wants to be loved and be fruitful. But they, they won't find contentment in, in, in the blessings that God has given them. But rather, they will find jealousy and animosity in what they Lack. And so what you get then is, is a retelling of the same story we've seen in Genesis over and over again. We have a lot of sibling rivalry, usually among brothers, and that makes sense. So you got Cain and Abel, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. You got Jacob and Esau. You got Ishmael and Isaac, Joseph and the boys, right? All these sibling rivalries. Right here we have sisters in rivalry. What one has, the other desires. So notice here the trajectory. Verse 32, uh, Reuben is born. This is of, of chapter 29. Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben. Why? Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, and now, now my husband will love me. Well, that wasn't enough. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son. And she called his name Simeon. You see what's changed now? She's not seeking the husband's love anymore because she knows after two boys, that's never going to happen. Verse 34, Levi is born again. She conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. He won't kick me to the curb. You see, you see the trajectory? Because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. By the way, Levi is the father of the Levites, the priestly line. Verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. She ceased bearing. You see what, what a sad trajectory that we have here. It's good that she comes and says, I will give praise to the Lord for all of his bountiful blessings. But we see she isn't content after these four boys. This only stirs jealousy in Rachel. She demands from Jacob that he give her a child. And so what eventually the, the two women do is they get their servants. You tell me if this story sounds familiar in Genesis. They get a servant girl to sleep with their husband so that through her they can have more kids. That story sound familiar? It's exactly what Jacob's grandmother did with, with his grandfather. 
Sarah got Hagar, their, their slave, to sleep with Abraham to produce a son named Ishmael. So here we have it, two women doing this. Leah and Rachel are doing it. So now what we have then are four women bearing uh, uh, children. You think this is going to add conflict to it? You absolutely uh, believe it, it will. Well, eventually in chapter 31, um, uh, they have to flee from Laban's home. And it's, and of course, obviously we're skipping a lot. God has blessed Jacob financially, though his domestic life is a bit of a mess. So they have to run away because Laban keeps deceiving the great deceiver. And this results in Laban choosing to sever all ties with his daughters, his son-in-law, and his grandchildren, all because of greed. If only there, there could be a sermon in there somewhere. And that is basically the biography of Rachel. What began as a stereotypical love story, snow and Christmas and all, has turned into a tragedy. So by the end of chapter 31, as, as they have left Laban, and they have to deceive their father, by the way. So the one who deceived the deceiver is deceived by his daughters. It's, it's good storytelling. Rachel has one son named Joseph. Seems like that may be of significance later on in the story. But she wants more. Having one son isn't enough. She has to have another. So though she's loved by her husband, it's not enough for her. She's been estranged by her father and now lives in a strange land. And so by the time we come to chapter 35, things didn't quite work out the way we would have expected them to for Rachel. It had all the markings of a great love story. But because of sin and pride and jealousy... It's turned into a tragedy. So as we come into chapter 35, we, we go from Rachel's broken past to her tragic end. Chapter 35 is a chapter of highs, very high highs, and very low lows. In fact, the, the first 15 verses is a great high. Jacob encounters God, so much so he calls the place Bethel, which means house, Beth, be it, and El, God, the house of God. I've told you all this before. There's a church in Owen County called El Bethel, which means God's house of God. I don't know what that means. That's just an interesting little uh, a nugget that you can uh, use if you're ever on Jeopardy. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Bethel means house of God. So he has this great uh, uh, encounter with God himself. And then what follows is a series of tragedies. Verses 16 to 21, as we read, is Rachel, his beloved wife, dies in childbirth. Verse 22, Reuben sleeps with his mother's servant, Bilhah. I wish we had time to talk about that. We'll just leave it hanging. Verse 23 to 29, Isaac, that is Jacob's father, dies and is buried. He has this great triumphant moment with God, followed by a series of great personal tragedies immediately after. But nevertheless, after years of jealousy with her sister, who has more sons than she, Rachel finally finds herself pregnant again. So Jacob moves his family from Bethel, the house of God, to in, uh, where he encountered God to a place called Ephrath. That will be on the quiz at the end of the service. Now, during this move, now I just want you to pause there because, because I can tell you right now, um, we, we were looking at possibly moving at the end of my wife's uh, uh, first pregnancy. I can also tell you we were not going to be moving while she was at the end of her pregnancy, right? <laughs> I mean, that's with cars and pickup trucks, okay? They didn't have that back then. You know, can you imagine? I, I could go and labor any day now, Jacob. And we're what? 
we're traveling uh, by, by horse and boogie to, to Oregon, right? <laughs> you know, no, I don't think that's going to happen. But nevertheless, he talked her into it. And during the move, she goes into labor. Here's a sojourner in a strange land. She goes into labor. The Hebrew word there for hard labor, the ESV translation, describes a very painful, a very difficult and complicated labor. And as the pain becomes more unbearable, the midwife assures Rachel that she is giving birth to yet another son. Now, that is an answer to prayer. Because in chapter 30, verse 24, immediately after she gives birth to Joseph, she says, yes, God has given me a boy. He needs to give me a second one. The second she gives birth to a child, she's already demanding a second. Well, as she lays dying there in verse 18 of chapter 35, she names her son Ben-Oni. This, like many Hebrew uh, titles, has a double meaning. We actually saw a double meaning, or we'll see this upcoming Wednesday, another double meaning uh, in Genesis 21. Um, it has a double meaning. One, it means son of my strength or, or son of my vigor. And that makes sense given the context, right? She, she gives birth to this child. Uh, she is her strength. She gave everything she had to give birth to him. It also means son of my sorrow. And scholars go back and forth as which one is the real meaning. Now, typically, when we come to situations like that, I prefer a, a all-of-the-above option. But most agree what is really motivated in the name is the latter, son of my sorrow. No wonder, then, given the ancient Near Eastern culture of the importance of names are prophetic or could even be a curse upon someone, like Jabez in 1 Chronicles, um, he changes his son's name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Now just pause there. Uh, go to the future in Genesis. You remember Joseph is, is sent away, right? And Jacob believes he's dead. He's lied to. The deceiver is deceived by his own children. And who becomes the favorite of Jacob? The one whose name means he's my right hand. You see that already in the narrative, we've not met all the boys yet. We don't know their whole story, their personality, anything, but we already know there's problems. Just as he showed favoritism towards his wives, he's going to show favoritism towards his sons. And that's going to create some problems. You remember how the boys said, no, 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 we can't go get Benjamin. Take our lives, but we, we, our father can't lose him. He's already lost the, the first son that he loved. Well, nevertheless... This ends the story of, Jake, of Rachel. It's less of a love story and more of a tragedy. In fact, the way the Bible uh, portrays Rachel is one of sorrow. Let's look at these real briefly. This is an oversimplification, but just for our purposes. Rachel shows up throughout the rest of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Leah is mentioned, I think, only one other time. That's in connection to, to Rachel. Um, but I've just put these in three categories for our purposes. One is she's mentioned as the mother of the tribes of Israel. Now, she's only a mother of, of, of two of the tribes, Joseph and, and, and Benjamin. But she's often grouped as the mother of the tribes of, of Israel. So let me just give you two examples here. Genesis 46, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, Benjamin. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to them, 14 persons in all. Right? Well, Rachel didn't have 14 kids, did she? Right, so... You, you can see it there. Uh, 
Another is just a very generic reference to, to her name. I'll give you one here. We'll look at Ruth Lorilla next week. Uh, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, May the Lord make uh, the woman like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. Right? Just, just a generic reference to may, may they continue the legacy of the lines of Jacob or the lines of Abraham. Just, just a generic reference. There's no deep meaning there really in many ways. But where her name is specifically used with any meaning, it is in context to sorrow. Let me give you just two examples. Chapter 48, um, as for me, this is Jacob, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath. You, You see there? When I came to my sorrow, Rachel died. Same thing happens in Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted for her children because they have no more. Now notice there, we don't see Rachel in this context ever in her story. She represents the, the mother of the tribes of Israel, even though biologically she, she's not. But you notice how easy it is for the narrators, for the writer of Scripture to connect Rachel with sorrow. And in the climax of that sorrow, is Jacob's sorrow the moment she dies in childbirth giving birth to Benjamin. Her story is not a love story. It's a tragedy. And when she represents Israel, it is in the context of sorrow. And this is the first reference to Bethlehem in the Bible. Twice of the narrative The writer wants you to associate this event with the sorrowful death of Rachel. Look at verse 19 of 35. So Rachel died and she was buried on her way to Ephrath, parentheses in the ESV. That is, don't miss this, Bethlehem. We've already saw this verse earlier, but, but, but I'll, I'll put it up there again, verse 48 and 7. This is Jacob saying that when I came to my sorrow, Rachel died. And, and I, I cut off the, the end there. He came to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So the city is associated with Rachel's death. And one of the things about the Bible is that cities are often associated as uh, representing maybe an entire nation. We saw that a few weeks ago in our study of, of 2 Samuel. Sometimes they're associated with, with evil or, you know, so like Babel is associated with Babylon. Nineveh shows up uh, in the uh, uh, genealogy of, of Cain in Genesis 10. Um, Bethlehem's first impression isn't very good, is it? Ephrath means place of fruitfulness. It's ironic, isn't it? Because they're on their way to fruitfulness with a very pregnant wife. And she dies. See the irony? No fruit there. So in the narrative, Jacob meets God and the ancient covenant is given. Look, look at 35 verse 11. This may be why he is moving. Uh, 35 verse 11, uh, God says, um, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And so what does he do? He goes to a place called fruitful, but what does he find along the way there? He finds death, tragedy. And so instead of fruitfulness, Bethlehem becomes the city of sorrow. Does this story sound familiar to you at all? 
Can you think of a time when Bethlehem is associated with sorrow? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, if you will. Matthew 2. I'm trusting you're familiar with this story. If not, in the next few weeks, you're going to become known the Christmas story a little better. But, but you know that the first, the first 12 verses, the Magi show up, right? And, 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 and along the way, what are they looking for? They're looking for the king of Israel. They come bearing gifts, right? And, and they encounter the supposed king of Israel, Herod, and they figure out this ain't the guy. So they follow the star by night, right? We, 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 we sing, about, sing about all that and everything. And so uh, they finally visit with Jesus, bring the gifts, and then they return home. And in verses 13 to 15, uh, a warning is given to Joseph to flee to Egypt. Now that detail is important, but we don't have time to get into it now. And so in verses 16 to 18, Herod, like Pharaoh before him, kills all the children, the baby boys, two and under. Let's read, starting in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, deceived, right? He's tricked by them. Became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That's why it's probably very likely when the wise men show up, Jesus is a toddler, not an infant just born. The wise men weren't at the nativity, not to ruin your decorations. Nevertheless, verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken to the prophet Jeremiah. Can you tell me if we've talked about this at all this morning? A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. Sound familiar? She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What is the story? It is the story of how, like Benjamin, Jesus is born into a world of sorrow. But we already knew that because he was born in Bethlehem. I want you to pause for a minute and consider about that. In every religion you will ever come across, God remains distant and far. He, he is above and beyond and, and, and holy and therefore cannot encroach upon this earth. But only in Christianity does God in Christ never surrender or, or, or give up any of his attributes, yet adds to his nature that of humanity. He enters our world of sorrow, despair, pain and brokenness. And in the context of his own birth, there's more sorrow and death. So what should have been a happy, uh, exciting moment has become yet another moment of sorrow. Life, the birth of a child has led to the death of others. It's the same story. But the point of the nativity is that Jesus enters into the darkness as light. One of my favorite parts of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is when Frodo and Sam are actually in Mordor, right? And here they are in the enemy's camp, and they're, they're hiding, and they're scared, and the weight of the ring is wearing down Frodo, and they are ready to give up. 
But Tolkien then has the, the dark clouds of Mordor, just, just a small opening, and there is Sam sees a star. It says, there, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him, for like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadows, capital S, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. You see what Tolkien is saying there? In the midst of darkness, there, just a glimpse, was light that gave him hope. We sing the same thing with O Come. I did that again. O Little Town of Bethlehem. That first verse, O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above your deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. And this is the line that I have always skipped. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the ever lasting light the hopes and fears of all the years are met with thee tonight it's almost as if the writer of that hymn wasn't reading luke 1 and 2 but was reading genesis 35 here is a city of sorrow that when christ comes it becomes a city of light how did Christ make that happen? He enters our world of darkness as lights. And he, like us, as the old hymn says, is a man of sorrows. And as a man of sorrows, he triumphs over the grave. He triumphs over our brokenness. He triumphs over our hurts, our sins, our guilt, and our shame. Man of sorrows, the hymn says, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame, scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full redemption can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. But now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, to his kingdom, us to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Isn't that the good news of Christmas? We already know we live in a broken world. This state is... Struggling with it right now as we speak. Brokenness isn't new. But what has changed is that Bethlehem is once again no longer the city of sorrow. It is the city of fruitfulness. 
Let's pray.